Hello and welcome to the Power in the Key podcast. I'm your host, Neil Winterton, and joining me on the line is that every week. It's Ben Cad. How are you, Caddy? I'm going well, we know. Nice to be back as the season's about to wrap up. And yeah, I think we're all ready now for playoff basketball. Teams that are kind of we're getting tired towards the end of the year have finally been able to just about get there with one game to go for most of them and they can um, look forward to another off-season. But then for the teams that are, have um, been able to qualify, it's um, yeah, game on for the next uh, next couple of months. Yeah, it's getting very exciting, mate. As you said, it's winding down with only one one day left and every team playing tomorrow. So it's a pretty hectic schedule tomorrow. So obviously as we get right down to the end of the season, it's, it's NBA awards season. We did our All-NBA selections last week and this week we're going to get into all the major awards and we'll kick it off, of course, with the, with the number one award, the MVP. And uh, it's sort of been an up and down award throughout most of the season. We've had some injuries to some of the key contenders but uh, so where, where did you fall, Caddy? How did you end up going with the MVP with your first spot? Yeah, look, I think we probably touched on touched on it last week, really, when we we're doing the All NBA teams, and um, this guy really probably put a, a fair gap in it uh, between himself and the other contenders. Just I think in the end, he was the one that was able to stay on the court all the way through and um, be really consistent with his with his plays. Numbers were off the chart, you know, all the way through. And Nikola Jokic, I think, should be. Probably the unanimous MVP when it's all said and done. I'd be surprised if there was even a, a, a single vote for someone else um, at that number one spot. So do you um, reckon he could him. actually get unanimous? Because that's obviously only happened once in the history. Do you think he's a chance to get that? I think he is, yeah. I think um, unless someone's going to be prepared to go with a Steph Curry, maybe. I uh, can't see Embiid now being able to stack up and um, maybe Giannis, but... You know, when you've got odds makers like Sportsbet having Jokic at a dollar oh one to win the award, pretty prohibitive um, odds. <laughs> it's probably suggesting that he's a fair, clear runaway uh, favourite, obviously. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether he can almost go unanimous. Look, for me, I think I think you know there's a fair chance he will. Yeah, that, that, that's probably the only interest, isn't it? I think he's been the one constant right throughout the season. You know, we we did our awards at the halfway mark, and I'm pretty sure we both had him in the number one position, but it was obviously a lot closer between him and Embiid, and I think he's obviously put a, a little bit of a gap between himself and Embiid, given that Embiid's only played the 51 games and, and Jokic up to the 71. So his numbers at the 26.4 points a game, 10.9 rebounds and 8.4 assists, the shooting splits are excellent, 56, 39, 86, 31.3 PER, which is you're starting to get up in, into those historical numbers, as I've said a number of times throughout the season. And then when you start to dig into some of these advanced numbers, well, he's first in win, win shares at 15.6. In second place is Rudy Gobert at 11.1. So that 4.5 margin is the same margin between Gobert in second place and John Collins in 29th place. So it really illustrates the gap he's been able to put between the whole league when, you, when you're when you looking at that the gap is the same between the second and the 29th place. So he's also first in offensive win shares, first in value over replacement, first in offensive win shares, first in box plus minus, first in offensive box plus minus. So, you know, all, all these, I said last week, some of these can sort of throw up some some strange some strange names, but when you're constantly the top of all, of all these, uh, measurements there. You, you, you're quite clearly been, been the best player in the league. Denver are the third seed at 47 and 24. They haven't fallen off the perch as many thought they would, including I think both of us when Jamal Murray went down. So I think in the end he's a pretty clear-cut uh, first-place uh, winner, isn't he? Yeah, I think so. And look, the, the stat for me, you know, and you mentioned the 71 games, is the fact he just ha- yeah hasn't missed a game all season. In a, in a season that was fraught with so, much, um, with so much danger and risk and, you know, most teams and most players really had some issues along the way. The fact that 
a guy like Jokic hasn't missed a game. He's just, I think, incredible in a, in a season such as this. So, you know, all credit to him, you know, considering the talk every off-season really is about what type of shape he's going to come into the season in. And, and again, this season, um, you know, there's probably some question marks around the condition he, he turned up in. But, you know, be able to play the whole season out every single night, some injuries around him and his team was just incredible. Um, I think I read something during the week that Denver are the only team in the past three years that's been able to capture home court advantage for the playoffs. So that's a really uh, another notch on the belt for Jokic and the Denver Nuggets. So hopefully for them, they can, you know, have another really exciting playoff run. And, you know, as you mentioned, um, we both, you know, I was really strong on the fact that I didn't think they could go any further once uh, the Jamal Murray injury happened. But, you know, they've gone 12 and 5 since that injury. And, you know, there's every chance, you know, they can probably proceed through, you know, the first round now. And um, the current, current matchup would be the Portland Trailblazers if things finish as they currently sit at the moment. There's a chance, obviously, the Lakers can still move into that sixth slot after uh, after tomorrow's games. And also Denver could, could also move down into, into the fourth slot, depending on the result there. So there's a bit to play out tomorrow. But, yeah, I think all in all, when we're talking MVP, it's going to be Nikola Jokic and he's going to be the deserving winner. He sure will be. Now, in second place, I had Joel Embiid. Now, his numbers have been terrific. The 28.5 points a game, 10.6 rebounds, 2.8 assists, the one steal and the 1.4 blocks. His shooting splits also, similar to Jokic, uh, have been excellent across the board at 51, 37, 85. And again, his PER, 30.3. Anytime you're getting over that 30 PER, there's some really good numbers. When you dig into his sort of advanced numbers, they don't bear out quite as strongly as Jokic. So he's ninth in win shares, 13 in offense, uh, offensive win shares, 10th in defensive win shares. Now he has, you've probably got to take in consideration he's only played the 51 games as opposed to Jokic has played the 71. So he can obviously rack up a lot a lot more numbers in some of these categories. And But when you start to get in the 40, in, he, go, he goes into second place in win shares per 48 minutes. So I think that sort of illustrates how good he's been when he's been on the court. Philly have wrapped up the first seed at, at, with a record of 48 and 23. So... Yeah, he was the one that was really pressing Jokic in the first half of the year. There was obviously a number of people uh, who thought Embiid was the, the the MVP at the halfway mark. I mean, we've heard some guys even say that they still consider him to be the MVP despite the fact that he has played the 20 less games than Embiid. I find that ridiculous. Part of being an MVP, you do have to actually be available and, and be on the floor as often as possible for your team. But I'm not going to dock him too much. He's had an outstanding season and he finished uh, pretty clearly in, in second spot for me. Who did you fall with in your second spot? Yeah, look, I'd have him as well. I'm interested, though, we know, to, to hear from you to think if he had played those extra 20 games and, and had gone, you know, essentially head-to-head games-wise with Jokic, do you think his season, with the fact that the Sixers have finished as the number one seed in the East, do you think he would have had a case to, to perhaps um, be the MVP? Yeah, I think he would have had a really strong case because if you stack up those numbers there, look, Jokic is clearly a, a better offensive player, but it's it's not by a huge amount. It's it's really they can both put points on the board. They both rebound the ball. It's Jokic's playmaking ability. The eight point four assists is is absolutely incredible for a center. He's you know he's putting up point guard numbers at the center position there. But Joel Embiid's a far superior defender. You could argue on his day and when he's locked in and really concentrating on the defensive end, Joel Embiid is the most impactful defender in the NBA. So I think the the offensive out, output coupled with the fact that he's a superior defender and the fact that Philly have wrapped up the number one seed, I think it would have been a really, really tight race and he probably even may have pipped Jokic for that, for that number one spot. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I think he, I'd have him as the second player in my rankings. Really close, really, I think, probably from two through to two, three, four. I think uh, the guys I'd have listed two, three, and four, I wouldn't have a huge gap between them. But 
I think on the merit of you know the, the first half of the season when Embiid was absolutely so dominant, uh, dominant, and I think he's you know come back from the injury that he had uh, really strongly and been able to see out the season and um, you know and take Philly all the way to the top of those Eastern Conference standings. So I have him too, and but not for, with a huge gap between him and the gods. I'll have it positions three and four. So who, who did you settle on in the third position then? Well, I've gone with Steph Curry. I just think his season has just been unbelievable. The fact that they've now pushed into the eighth seed, um, obviously with a game against the Grizzlies, which is a bit of a you know a play-in pre-play-in tournament play-in game, if you like. So the winner of obviously the Golden State Warriors and the Grizzlies tomorrow will get the eighth seed and um, get that sort of extra double chance, I suppose, in the play-in tournament. So there's a bit on the line for both of those teams, but I think yeah, the fact Curry. Has been able to do what he's done this year. Obviously, when Clay Thompson went down pre-season, you know there were significant concerns around how this Warriors team was going to be able to stay competitive. But Curry's been able to hold it together again and um, you know return really to some form that he had, you know, in those championship seasons. You know, he was coming off a really serious injury last year as well, but yeah, came back, hasn't missed a beat, and um, I think I would have. You know, I think he's he's got a really strong case, you know, in terms of the whole MVP conversation, but I think Jokic is a fair way in front, but I've had Curry just in behind Joel Embiid. Yeah, I also settled on Steph in the third position. It was really close between Steph and my fourth place uh, uh, position there. Uh, Steph's numbers, incredible, 31.8, a league-leading 31.8 points a game, the 5.5 rebounds, 5.7 assists, 1.2 steals, shooting splits, excellent, like, like both Jokic and Embiid, 48 42 and 91, uh, the 26.3 PER. Some of these advanced numbers really jump off the page. Third in box plus minus and third in value over replacement. Yeah, as, as you mentioned there, Golden State at the moment in the, in the eighth position at 38 and 33. They don't have a lot around Steph Curry, especially offensively. So his ability to be able to carry, carry a, probably a, a subpar offensive team, certainly uh, into, in, into the eighth spot in, in the really tough Western Conference speaks volumes for the for the season Steph's been put together. We've spoken about him a number of times over the last few weeks and how impressed we've been. And he, he went on an historical tear throughout the month of uh, of April. So he, he's probably made his run at the, at the right time of the year. If he'd made this run maybe at the start of the year, it would have been interesting to see where he did finish, in, and, I, and, I, and I will be interested to see where he does finish when all is said and done in the MVP discussion. But I, like you, had him in the third position. And in the fourth position, I had Giannis. And his numbers stack up really well to, to last year. The numbers he's put up this year at 28.4 points a game, 11 rebounds, 5.9 assists, the 1.2 steals and the 1.2 blocks. It's really only the, the, the rebounds that have dropped off significantly as opposed to last year. His shooting splits 57, 30, and 68. So he, he's, his free throw numbers are, are, are starting to jump up, which is what we need to see given how often he does get to the to the free throw line. He actually leads the league in free throw attempts for the season. So he, he obviously causes a lot of headaches for the, for the defense and they try and wrap him up and put him on the line and make him earn his, his points as much as possible. But he's just such a force in the paint. Some of the dunks he throws down where he just extends his arm and it looks like he's going to have to lay it in, but all of a sudden he's throwing down a dunk. He's absolutely incredible. The PER, PER just under 30 at 29.4. Milwaukee, the third seed at 55 and 25. I guess the only little sort of question as opposed to last season, he was the defensive player of the year last year. Has his defense slipped? Maybe marginally, but he's still a, a very impactful defender, you know, and well and truly a worthy winner of uh, fourth place in the MVP. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, it's on those numbers, really, on, you know, on any other season, they'd be probably MVP caliber numbers, really. And I think as, you, as we probably identified, Pretty early in the season, uh, when we're going 
going through our sort of mid-season awards, we thought there'd be some uh, hesitation really around the um, Giannis narrative in terms of the MVP. But really, his numbers, you know, are really of MVP quality. It's one of two guys that are averaging the 25 points, 10 rebounds and five assists, just him and Jokic that are that are doing that. You know, so he's in really good company there. And yeah, I mean, Milwaukee, again, have had a, had a strong season. So really, I think it's just um, some Giannis fatigue potentially that obviously the more excitement around the Jokic and Bede stories rather than, than him, but he's had a, another truly incredible season and, and you know, really deserves to be in the in the conversation, absolutely. And the advanced numbers also back that up. So he's fourth in win shares, fourth in offensive win shares, seventh in defensive win shares, fourth in win shares per 48 minutes, second in box plus minus, and second in value over replacement. So, so those numbers suggest that he's had a, a very outstanding year and he's right at the top of the league. Uh, the fifth position I thought was probably the most interesting one. I thought the top four was probably always going to be those four players. Now, what order they sort of fell in could, could have been up for debate. But who did you end up settling on on the fifth position? Yeah, I, I had the four as the clear cut as well. And I know there's you know there's been a lot of Chris Paul buzz around you know the, this sort of top five race. For me, I, I couldn't quite get to that point with him. I think I touched on last week, he's been a, a slow burn and I was you know, I thought I was, I was outdoing myself really putting him in, into that second team's uh, All-NBA slot. It was um, a real change for me to be able to acknowledge him so well, really. But I couldn't quite get there with the top five in the MVP. I've gone for Luka Doncic instead. I think, you know, what he's done again in Dallas this season has been outstanding. And I, we've touched on all the reasons why uh, last week when we were running through those All-NBA teams. But I'd have him just ahead of that next group, um, which probably includes guys like Damian Lillard and obviously Chris Paul. Um, then you're sort of going down again to obviously, you know, LeBron James and a few of the others that have missed quite a lot of basketball, like James Harden and these guys. But for me, it's Luca. Um, I think he'll he runs out my top five. It's ended up being pretty boring, hasn't it? Because I've gone <laughs> Doncic as well. So we've gone the exact same players in the exact same order. So his numbers, again, similar to last season, outstanding, the 27.9 points a game. Eight rebounds, 8.6 assists, uh, the one steal, shooting splits at 47, 35, 73. You'd love him to bump that free throw shooting up to, towards about 80%. His PER at 25.3 is a really healthy number. Interestingly, when you dive into the advanced metrics with Doncic, they, they, they come up a bit flat. So 14th in win shares, 19th in offensive win shares, which, which I thought was very surprising. 31st in win shares per, per 48 minutes. Eighth in box plus minus, seventh seventh in offensive box plus minus. This one sort of favours him really strongly. Fourth in value over replacement. So when I started to to dive into these advanced numbers, I started to question whether we should have whether I certainly should have Luka Doncic in the fifth spot. But when I looked at the fact that Dallas were in the fifth seed, their record at forty two and twenty nine, the West is obviously a very strong conference. And who do you think is Dallas's second best player? Is it Porzingis potentially? But he's only played the forty two games. It, is it Hardaway Junior? I don't know. He's he's a, he's a guy that comes off the bench and and can be a bit of an instant offense. But who do you think is Dallas's second best player, Caddy? Well, I think on this season it's probably been Hardaway Junior from the consistency point of view. I mean, Chris Stapsbazingas has missed so much basketball, and I think that's you know a reason for me that I you know I'd, I'd prefer to reward Luca with with that slot. I think he's been able to do so well in Bazingas' uh, absence to the fact that you know I'm sure Dallas are really even reevaluating you know, whether that's, you know, the best fit for them going forward. So the Mavericks have won eight of their last 10 games uh, with Chris Stapps missing seven of those last eight. And Donkic is the guy that's been able to be their leader. He leads the NBA um, across the entire league in 30-point 30 30 point games with five rebounds and five assists. He's done that 22 times. 
And he's also scored uh, over 25 points 45 times during the season, which currently ranks third. So his season's been outstanding you know, across the board, rebounding, assists, he does it all. And, um, yeah, you know, in a pretty weakened Dallas lineup, I think, to be fair, to get them all the way up into a, into a five seed as it stands and, and probably likely to finish there, um, which is absolutely outstanding. Yeah, it certainly is. And that was the reason that I ended up going with Doncic. If you took him out of their lineup, they'd be right near the bottom of the lottery. I can't see how they, they would be even close to sniffing the playoffs. So that was the reason I did reward him. You mentioned some of the other guys. You know, Chris Paul's started to get a lot of buzz towards the end of the season. There was a bit of bit of a push for him at one stage. There was some articles that were coming out suggesting that Chris Paul should be the, the MVP of the season. Now, he's he's had a great season. I, I, I'm a huge Chris Paul fan. You said you've sort of come to the party a bit late, but I can't see him really challenging for the award. Obviously, LeBron and Harden sort of – LeBron was right up there at the halfway mark and Harden was sort of etching, edging his way into the conversation, but they've only played the 43 games, uh, both of them, so they've taken themselves out of consideration because they just haven't been on the floor enough. The one guy who did sort of jump jump up the more I dived into these advanced numbers – now, advanced numbers don't mean everything, I understand that, but I think it, it does give a pretty good indication of guys who have had really good season. And the one guy that, that continued to pop up was, was Rudy Gobert, and obviously – Utah Jazz have, have led the West. They've got the number one record in the whole NBA. Now, his numbers at 14.3 points a game, 13.5 rebounds, uh, the league leading 2.7 blocks. He's, he's the front runner for the Defensive Player of the Year, which we'll talk about a bit later in the program. But w- when you dive into some of the advanced numbers, he's second in win shares, first in defensive win shares, fifth in win shares per 48 minutes and 14th in value over replacement. So I thought it was interesting to see, and I know you, I think you spoke about him a bit Early in the year when we did our MVP discussions, it was interesting to see once you once I did dig into all these numbers how high uh, Rudy Gobert flew up my, my rankings. Yeah, I mean I've been big on the fact of how important his role is, and you know it obviously helps when Utah are winning so many games. You know that the number one team in the whole entire NBA this season, and and I just think what he does for that team is just so crucially important. And I think generally just because of the scoring numbers are uh, a, a, a fair way off these other guys we've been talking about, he gets you know pretty much overlooked every time you have these conversations. But he's going to be, the, I think, the defensive player of the year. will be his third time he's going to win that award. And, you know, I think he's the key reason uh, the Utah Jazz have had such a great year. Donovan Mitchell, obviously, is the is the second banana there or the first banana, depending on which way you want to go with it. But, um, you know, he's missed a lot of the back end of this season and the Utah Jazz Really, as much as they probably haven't had the same dominance they had early in the season, they've been able to maintain a stranglehold on that number one seed uh, in the West and the number one record in the NBA. And, and Go Bears the guy, often for me, um, that creates a lot of what they do, both offensively and defensively. He certainly does. So given we're talking about him, we might as well jump into the Defensive Player of the Year. And I, I'd had Rudy Gobert at the top of my rankings. Now, when you look at his defensive numbers, I just obviously went through them there with a 135 uh, rebounds at the league leading 2.7 blocks. Um, I went through some of the, the advanced numbers. So he's first in defensive win shares, uh, fifth in defensive box plus minus, first in defensive rating. The Utah Jazz are ranked have the fourth ranked defense in the league. Now, when you look at their roster, obviously apart from, from Gobert, how many above average defenders have they got? Royce O'Neal's a really good wing defender. Uh, Derek Favors, I suppose, is, is a good defender for a backup center. Joe Ingles certainly tries his ass off, but you wouldn't call him an elite defender. Mike Conley's been a very good defender in the past, but he's probably slowing down a little bit. So, you know, it, it's certainly Rudy Gobert that, that is the main reason that, that the Utah Jazz have that fourth-ranked defense. Uh, there was a stat that I did like that popped up through the week that when uh, Gobert defends the pick and roll, he only he allows 
0.85 points per play, which it, which is the number one ranking out of players who have defended uh, at least uh, over 400 of those plays. So obviously there's some guys who have got better rankings than that, but they might not defend them enough. Now there's 101 players that are qualified that have de- that have defended the pick and roll at least 400 times, and he's ranked number one. And obviously the way the NBA is played now, the pick and roll being such a key aspect of of every offense, he defends that the best in the league, and that's the reason I've got him at number one for me. Yeah, look, I think um, you know the, all of those defensive advanced numbers that you've you've read out. I think is really lent to him being the favourite uh, for this award. And again, if we're, we're sort of looking at the the odds makers, they've got him at dollar oh three at sports bet. So I think you know I think collectively across the board, it's looking like it's going to be a fairly convincing win. I mean, Ben Simmons is the other guy, obviously in the conversation. You know, six foot eleven guy that can guard all positions. Um, he's had another excellent year, particularly defensively, and, and I think there'll be a lot of consideration for Ben Simmons for the fact of how what he does is really, really so important. He's the best perimeter defender in the NBA. It's a, you know a different style of uh, defense than what we're seeing Rudy Gobert play. So his ability to guard anyone from any team is so important. You know, and, and as much as he doesn't put up the the block shots and those type of defensive numbers like Gobert does, the defensive impact I think is is felt almost just as much. So. You know, Simmons, I think, can be can be underrated. I mean, we've gone through it a number of times and we've talked about Simmons, particularly in the first half of the season. You know, I think there's some times where he, he can be um, drastically underrated because of his shooting and, and the scoring numbers. But I think the, the defence is really what sets him, him apart as a player and um, the fact he can do it at such a high level and be so versatile is so important. But, yeah, I just don't think it's been enough to overshadow what Ruby Gobert has been able to do for the Utah Jazz this season. So did you, did you have Simmons in your number two spot? Yeah, clearly number two for me, Simmons, and um, yeah, obviously behind uh, Rudy Gobert. Yeah, so I agree. I had Simmons in the second spot. You mentioned there that the numbers, it's really hard to quantify Ben Simmons as a defender, isn't it? Because you said there he's got the 1.6 steals. He doesn't block the ball anywhere near as much as the centres. But you said he's the best perimeter defender in the NBA, and I agree with that. He, he is. And and obviously it's a perimeter-orientated game at, at, the, at the moment. So it's really important that you have – a guy who's who can defend on the perimeter. Philly have the second best defense in the NBA. Obviously, he's got some really good support around him. Um, unlike Gobert, he's got Joel Embiid, who I mentioned earlier could possibly be the be- the most impactful defender in the NBA, and also and also Aussie Matisse Thybul. So. Thibault's a, a terrier on the defensive end, so he's certainly got a bit more um, assistance than, than Gobert's got, but S- Simmons is a great defender. He can le- legitimately guard the one through five. I don't think he'd have any issues guarding uh, pr- pretty much any centre, uh, so I think he's such a valuable guy on the defensive end. So, some of the, the defensive numbers, so he's sixth in defensive win share, seventh, seventh in defensive box plus minus, and fifth in defensive rating. So as I said, it's hard to quantify some of these perimeter players, and maybe those numbers there don't really shed a light on how good he has been on the defensive end, but I agree with you. I had Simmons in the second spot. So I thought those two were probably the clear-cut uh, defensive player of the year candidates. The third spot was interesting for me. I, I ended up falling with Draymond Green. Now, Draymond come comes out a lot and, and says that he believes he's the best defender in the NBA because he can guard one through five. We saw him do that so so well right through Golden State's sort of, you know, golden three or four years that they had, had there. But he's still such a, an impactful defender. He's got the 1.7 steals. Similar to Simmons, it's hard to quantify when you just look at his defensive numbers. But he's fifth in defensive win shares, second in defensive defensive box plus minus and seventh in defensive rating. Now Golden State actually have the fifth ranked defense and when you look at their roster, I can't pinpoint another guy where I think, yep, he, he's an above average defender. So Draymond Green, not only for his defensive work, but you, you just 
if you listen to him and, and watch him on the defensive end, he never shuts up. He's always pointing. He's calling out the, the offensive players for, for the opposition. He's such a intuitive and smart defender, and, and he alone makes the Golden State a really good defense. Yeah, I mean, he, he's really got to focus all his energy onto that side of the floor because of, you know, obviously his limitations now offensively, particularly from a shooting and scoring point of view. But, yeah, look, he, he's been so important at the other end to allow Steph Curry to, to almost sort of take possessions off every now and then to, to keep his energy and focus to what he can do up the other end of the floor. So, you know, to have him rank so highly is a real credit to, to Draymond Green. And, you know, I think, again, we touched on him, you know, throughout the season around, you know, what's he's going to be his best fit from his career standpoint moving forward, whether it's, you know, whether the Golden State Warriors can continue to invest so much money into him or whether, you know, there could be value for him at, at another franchise, um, you know, in, in the next couple of years. So obviously still so elite defensively and credit to him on that side of the ball because, yeah, obviously the shooting's almost non-existent now and he can really, you know, hone down onto that defence and, you know, and the passing that he's so good at as well. Um, so, yeah, still such an important player for the Warriors to be able to uh, allow them to do what they do. So where did you fall on your third spot in the Defensive Player of the Year? Yeah, well, I've gone, I've probably, you know, I was looking at a couple of the, the more common players that are around this award generally, but I settled on Giannis um, from Milwaukee Bucks as well. I'm not even going to attempt the surname. I've, I've never been great at any of those uh, <laughs> international not, names. Not an easy I'm not going to begin now. So I, look, I've got Giannis in there as the um, as the third slot. Um, I think still an elite defender. You know, such a difficult proposition to come up, up against just due to his size. The rebound numbers are still really great. Block shots still at 1.2 point, uh, 1.2 blocks a game, 1.2 steals a game. Yeah, just a, such a difficult play to obviously play against. Um, length, versatility, athleticism, um, he's got all the tricks there. And I think yeah, perennially ranks well in these sort of awards. So I'll um, stick with Giannis as my number three on the defensive ballot. Yeah, probably the best help defender in the NBA, given his uh, his ability to be able to cover such ground, and obviously he, his reach is outstanding. So I'll be interested to see. Mention the fact that he he won it last year, and had he slipped a little bit, maybe marginally. So I'll be interested to see where he does fall in, in the overall scheme of things when when the votes are tallied up. So we'll move on to the rookie of the year. Now this draft was basically seen to be a three player draft at the start of the season. Probably did shape out not not as yeah probably about as strong as what we initially thought. Not not really deep. So I'll be interested to see where you fell for this because there was obviously Lamelo Ball, but he he missed quite a few games. Who did you end up falling with in the number one spot? Yeah, look, I really, I think this will be the the tightest race um, in in a lot of these awards, and um, you're obviously looking at Lamelo Ball as one contender. Anthony Edwards is the other guy, just due to the the absolute you know, amount of shots he's been able to take for Minnesota and the scoring numbers that do compare favourably. But I, I'm going to not stick shy with about Lamelo. firing away, is he? Oh, not at all. He's been obviously given the the license uh, to do it, and you know, like like many rookies performing on on bad teams, he's been able to sort of get away with it. Whether it's going to be any good for him longer term, well, that's going to be there to be seen. But uh, look, I ended up preferring Lamelo Ball season over Anthony Edwards in the end. I just thought the fact he was fine, you know, just able to get up to the fifty games. He's currently at fifty. If he plays tomorrow, it'll be fifty one. I sort of probably ended up having fifty as uh, probably the threshold that I was uh, going to allow to to sort of rank him as the number one spot. But just the all-round uh, brilliance that he's been able to show, the 15.7 points, 5.9 rebounds, 6.2 assists. You know, the, the percentages for the shooting has obviously got a, a ways to go, just shooting 43.9% from the field. I think the three-point percentage at 35.6 in the end is a pretty good result for him in his rookie season. So I think that's an area that he's been able to hold up uh, reasonably well 
it, there were some concerns around the consistency of his three shot, uh, three point shot out here in the NBL uh, last year. But I think he's been able to obviously nail that at a pretty good rate. Effective field goal percentage overall at fifty point eight, which is which is not too bad. So I think the fact he's been able to come in, you know, obviously came into the league playing in a bench role for Charlotte, and they were able to sort of jump out of the gates reasonably well this year. And then they got to the halfway mark, and obviously the Lamelo ball injury, and then. Gordon Haywood as well. So they've, they've sort of scrapped their way to where they currently sit, which is in the eighth seed. There's a danger they could slide all the way down to the tenth seed, uh, depending on results tomorrow. They've lost their last four games, which is disappointing uh, for Charlotte. But look, they're going to be in the playing tournament. They'll give themselves an opportunity uh, to come through. I'd still have them as a, as a reasonable chance to get into the eighth seed in the end if they can uh, obviously pull things together here. And I think Lamelo Ball is going to be a really key part of it. I had him as my X factor for them in the playoffs. You know, I think he's been able to show throughout the season that he is capable of, of really, you know, producing when it counts uh, for this team. And and I think his his rookie season's probably been surprisingly, I think, better than what most people would have thought, and and, and up there with it as a, as an impactful rookie season as we've seen for a, for a number of years. Yeah, I also said on, on Lamelo, and obviously the biggest quandary was that that games played scenario. So you mentioned he's at the fifty games. Anthony Edwards is at seventy one, so Edwards hasn't missed a game. I did mention earlier that Jokic. Having had him not missed a game was a difference between him and Embiid in, in the MVP. So it probably sounds a bit ridiculous to then sort of backflip on that. But I, I think Lamelo Ball had been had been more impactful on the floor than Edwards had been. Now Edwards has obviously finished the season season off pretty strongly, but Ball's ability to to be able to orchestrate the offense and and shoot that outside ball. You mentioned there that that was probably the biggest question mark of leading into the the season on him. And, and without question, it was he's got that funky release, but to be able to hit it at an above average. Uh, 36% is is great for him. So that's one concern that you can sort of tick off and say that Lamelo, you know, if he, if he can continue on that trajectory, we have seen guys sort of have uh, outlier seasons. Even Draymond Green had an outlier season. Um, and So hopefully that's not the case for Lamelo. Hopefully he can continue to be a good, consistent outside shooter. But he's just a highlight reel waiting to happen, isn't he? We've seen the, these no-look passes and, and just his vision and his connection he has with Miles Bridges and the and the Hornets announcer goes off his tits every time he does something. And it's it's, it's just great to watch. The the NBA is a, a, a better place when Lame, when Lamelo balls on the floor and, and running and running the show for Charlotte. So I think he needs to be commended for playing on a team. You know, most of the time they, these top rookies come into the NBA, they're playing on on some some really low down franchises, and Charlotte had obviously been a, a team that had that had struggled the last couple of seasons, and he's been able to get them and be a big part of getting them up in into the playoffs at the moment at the thirty three and thirty seven. Now they have started to slide since he's come back into the rotation, but I don't think you can pin you can pin that on the Mallow. I think it's just them adjusting now to the fact that they've got such a big part of their offensive back offense back into the rotation and it's just taking a bit longer than obviously they would like. They've got the one game tomorrow and then leading in the playoffs. So hopefully they can get their act together because if they can, I'm not quite sure what the Gordon Hayward situation is at Charlotte. There hasn't been a lot of news coming out about him, but if they can get him maybe back, maybe they can make some noise. So I think Lamelo does deserve to be the rookie of the year, but I agree with you. It's going to be really interesting and probably the closest out of all these awards uh, this race there because yeah, Anthony Edwards uh, his numbers at 19.1 points a game, 4.7 rebounds, 2.9 assists. The shooting splits aren't anything to write home about at 41, 32, and 76. His PER, PER at 13.6 is below league, league average. But we've really seen him come on in the back half of the season, haven't we? Over his, over his last month, he's, he's averaged 23.1 points a game, 6.3 rebounds, 3.9 assists, 
1.1 steals, and importantly, 48% from the floor, and he's hitting 3.1 three points a game. So he, he's improved. Uh, obviously, as the season's gone on, he, he's adjusted to the NBA. He's just an absolute elite athlete. When you watch him play, he sort of he reminds me a bit of a young Dwayne Wade, the way he's able to attack the, the cup. He, he, can, he can finish with either hand. He's obviously thrown down a number of spectacular dunks. So his ability and uh, to finish at the rim and the fact that his athleticism is so good, and, and coupled with the fact that he's been able to start to shoot from the outside, I can see him, and I'll throw this question at you, who would you prefer to have over over their career, uh, LaMelo Ball or Anthony Edwards? Oh, look, I still think I'm in LaMelo Ball's corner. I think if he can continue to develop the way he is at six foot seven, uh, you know, such a great size for a, for a playmaking guard, I think um, that, that allows him to be a lot more flexible than, than probably where Edwards is going to be. I think Edwards is going to be a perennial you know, 20-point average scorer, no doubt, in, in his career. And, and I think, you know, he's had a fair bit of probably shit thrown at him during the year for the way he's uh, played particularly early in the, you know, some of the poor shooting numbers. But I, I really think in the end, this rookie season's been been really good. The fact he hasn't missed a game to start with again, I think is unbelievable. You know, averaging just under the 20 points straight out of the gates. Um, again, you know, obviously we understand he's been given the green light. He's averaged 16.8 attempts for the season, just making seven of those. So, now that 41.6 field goal percentage is, is probably you know a lot lower than you'd, you'd like it to be, but that's kind of what they've allowed him to, to evolve into. So hopefully he can sharpen that up uh, moving into next season because I think he definitely has the potential. His athleticism, as you mentioned, is, is, is incredible. We've seen some of the dunks he's been able to uh, pull off during the season as well. So now I think you know Minnesota in the end would be reasonably happy with the way he's come on. I think they'd be very happy actually. Of, of the way that he's been able to play. And as you mentioned, that that last month, and even just prior to that, when they made that coach, coaching change, his numbers did improve, uh, came into the starting lineup as well. And I think he's been able to hold his own and, and certainly got a, a really bright future ahead of him. Yeah, I think he's probably got a higher ceiling than Lamello. Whether he reaches that or not is obviously the question, but his athleticism and everything he can do, I could see him being being a, a you know perennial all star if he can reach that ceiling. And that last month, the last month. Now, sometimes you can get a bit of full gold, fool's gold in the last month of the NBA season. Some teams are just winding down and basically not even trying, and some teams are just sort of resting guys. So the last month can you see it sort of every year. Some team sort of has a bit of an outlier month, and you and you think that, and some players do. You think they're going to go into the next season and roll on, and that doesn't quite happen. But I think Minnesota have shown some really promising signs since they've got. Carl Anthony Towns back into their lineup. Obviously, Russell there as well. So I think going forward, if they can hang on to their draft pick, get get someone next to the three guys I've got there, and I think they could be in for a really promising season next season if Edwards can uh, continue on this trajectory. Who, uh, so who did you fall with at the number three uh, spot there, Caddy? I'll just jump in and give you one more stat just on the Lamello ball case. I'll just have him on notes here as well. He's going to be on pace to be the full, fifth rookie ever to average at least 15 points, five rebounds, five assists per game with a true shooting percentage of 55%. The other four, Oscar Robinson, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, and Ben Simmons. So, reasonable um, company. Elite, reasonable company. Um, so, you know, for for that rookie season, have those sort of numbers. And again, that true that true shooting percentage is that area that I think that surprises up. You know, I think in the end, he's going to be a walking triple-double as he progresses. And uh, yeah, I just thought that was... Quite interesting to note. And in terms of the, the guy having the three spot, it was pretty slim pickings really in the end. You know, I think although there, there may seem to be a lack of star quality in this draft class, you go down the order, most of these guys have actually ended up becoming regular rotation players all the way from, 
through the first round from pick one all the way down to about pick 30. There's not too many that haven't been able to sort of etch out a, a rotation spot um, in their team that's chosen them. So that's a that's a really good start for most of these guys that have come out. I just think at the top end of it, um, we just haven't seen too many you know, really at the elite uh, level of it. So I'd have Tyrese Halliburton still. I know he, he had a season-ending injury, um, hasn't played the the last part of the season, but I think what he was able to do early on for the um, Sacramento Kings was certainly give their supporters um, some hope and some some real excitement of, of what he can do. You know, going into the future, he was able to play meaningful minutes in meaningful games early in the season and and play them, you know, with 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 great purpose. And you know, the coaching staff there, Luke Walt was able to throw him out there with real confidence. He was able going to be able to um, do everything he needed to do. So he averaged the thirteen points, five point three rebounds. And, uh, sorry, 5.3 assists and three rebounds in, in just over 30 minutes a game. So the 30 minutes is really, really important. The the end came off the bench pretty much the entire season. So um, I think his season as a whole um, was probably worthy of being the third spot in this Rookie of the Year race. Yeah, I also went with Halliburton. So, he, yeah, you, you, went, you ran through his numbers there. The fact that he played such a, a key role in a team that up until a couple of days ago, amazingly, they, they were still in the playing in tournament uh, Hunt there and, and Sacramento have obviously had a had a I think now the longest uh, streak in, in NBA history of, of missing the playoffs. So he was one guy that was sort of impacting winning and and his numbers started to jump up the more the season went on. And I think it was his shooting splits for me that were impressive. So for a guard to shoot the forty seven percent from from the field, forty percent from three, and eighty five percent from the line, you see a lot of guards. And and we we went ran through Edwards' numbers there, and Lamelo Ball's numbers weren't, weren't even at the level of Therese Halliburton. So the fact that he was able to shoot that those uh, splits from the field uh, just really shows what what sort of a professional player is you mentioned there's not a lot of star power and he's probably never going to be an all-star type player but he's just going to be one of those players that every team loves to have he does the right thing doesn't make many mistakes can can hit the open shot when required um, and, and and there'll be certainly be a number of teams that were kicking themselves that they passed on Halliburton and he was able to fall all the way down to Sacramento and Sacramento have had such a checkered history of, of passing on on, on a lot of really quality players, Doncic being the obvious the obvious one, but I think they they were, they were really lucky that Halliburton fell to them and that and they were able to select him because I think he's going to be a big part of their future going forward. Now moving on to the next award, which is the most improved one, which is always an interesting one. We 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 mentioned this uh, when we spoke about this early on in the year. How do you quantify who the most improved player is? What you know? What do you think is more, more important going from a from not even in the rotation to a big part of the rotation or a rotation piece to an all-star or however you want to shape it. So I'll be interested, Caddy, to see who you fell with uh, in your most improved race. Yeah, again, I think we touched on it, you know, just working out the best way of, of you know, trying to work through the improvement of a player, whether it's going from from bench role to starter or, you know, a good player to a great player or a great player to an elite player. Although when all said and done, I think you know, middle of the season we had guys like Christian Wood, Jeremy Grant as probably the front runners. But I think in the end, for me, it's Julius Randle who's been able to turn himself into a, you know, from a, a really good player, a really good solid stats player, into a, a team leader and, a, and an all star. So I think for him to make that leap and, and be able to lead the New York Knicks into the playoffs this season um, is something that I don't think too many of us saw coming. And you know, he had a, had a good year for the Knicks last year. And, um, when he in the first year of that three-year deal, but I think you know the leap that he's been able to take in the end this season was it was you know quite significant, and um, you know to be able to really project out that you know hopefully now he can be become a consistently good player at the, at the elite level and, and be a, a multiple all-star. Then I really hope that this 
transition from some from, from, from probably good to great uh, can be sustained um, not just uh, this season and uh, going into the into the future. So I think you know in the end he was sort of the guy that was able to consistently do so well all the way through the season at a higher level than what he'd been doing in the past. And you know averaging twenty four ten and six shouldn't be taken lightly at the best of times. Uh, but to be able to come up from not hopeless averages prior to that, but I think just the now. Um, elevating that team into winning basketball has been so important, and I think rather than sort of rewarding a guy like Jeremy Grant coming from a, you know a, a probably a lesser role in Denver to a starting role and just being able to put up big numbers, then I think you know Randall's been able to sort of just make that genuine improvement uh, year on year. Yeah, I also fell on Randall. I, th- I think this is a pretty clear cut one. I'll, I'll be surprised if it's not Randall. So th- that jump from going from you know, he's certainly a good player to, to all-star level, all-NBA-type uh, player. is a really difficult one to make. And for a guy to do that in his seventh season, he's certainly unusual. Uh, you ran through his numbers there. So he's at 24.2 points a game, which has jumped up from 19.5. The rebounding's only slightly up, but the assists are up. Last year was 3.1 assists. This year he's up to six. Um, and it was a three-point shooting, which jumped up from 27% last year to 41. Now, that's an astonishing rise, isn't it? To, and and the attempts have gone up too. So it's not as if he's dropped the attempts and started to take easy ones. So last year he shot 3.6 attempts a game. This year he's up to 5.5. So his ability to A, be able to shoot more of them and B, do it at such such a higher efficiency rate than he did last year is, is outstanding. You know, we've spoken about him a number of times over the last few weeks and to have the, the New York Knicks in the fourth seed in, in the East at 40, 40 and 31. As I said, nobody would have seen that coming. He's, I think he's a lock to get into one of the All-NBA teams. We both had him in our second All-NBA teams. I've seen a lot of these prominent NBA uh, journalists have started to do uh, their All-NBA teams over the last week or so, and most of them have had him in there. So I'll be staggered if he doesn't get into one of these All-NBA teams. So to jump from, from not even considered an All-Star straight into an All-NBA player and to carry a what we thought was just an average New York New York Knicks roster into the fourth seed in the East. I think this is pretty clearly the award for Julius Randle. I did go with Jeremy Grant. I know you sort of uh, said that you know maybe you don't reward a guy, he just gets a bigger role. But I, I had him in my second spot. Now, he's, he's numbers. You, you know it. He certainly did get a much bigger role than he had in Denver. But he's jumped up from 12 points a game last year to 22.3. So that's, you know, that's a significant jump there. Um, his assists are up. Now, he's only assisting at 2.8 points. Uh, 2.8 assists a game, but it has jumped up from the 1.2. Um, the, the field goal percentage has dropped down, and so is the three-point percentage, but you'd expect that because the, the defences are obviously keying in on Jeremy Grant. He probably tailed off a little bit as the season wore on and wasn't probably quite as efficient as he was in the first half of the year, but I just think his ability to be able to jump up 10 points a game isn't something that, that, that should be sneezed at, despite the fact that he has had a lot more opportunity this year than he did last year. I, I think uh, he deserves to be recognised for the season he's had. Yeah, I think so too. Look, and, you know, I just don't think, you know, I think the Randall stuff, I think is more valuable, you know, when, we, when we're when we looking for this award. But I think, yeah, you can't go past the the, the numbers and the improvement that he's been able to show uh, from last year to this year, obviously playing a, a totally different role in a totally different team. Um, yeah, but the 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 pointing, as you said, the scoring from twenty uh, up from twenty uh, up from twelve to twenty two, you know, and only seven extra minutes a game. He was averaging the twenty six point six minutes for Denver, up to the thirty three point nine now, but able to increase the scoring uh, by ten points is, is certainly not insignificant. So I, I had him in the second spot there, and probably I think I had him um, as the as the leader at the halfway point. But I think you know, the more you think about it, and just that being able to improve like Randall has from the 
from taking a team with a really subpar record last year and just been able to fine-tune his game to the point where he's now talked in these discussions is, um, yeah, I think it's going to be a bit of a no-brainer too to, to take out the take out the award. Yeah, so where did you fall in your third place in the most improved? Uh, in the third place, um, I ended up putting a line through Christian Wood in the end. I just think the, the game's missed in the end was, was pretty significant. So I took it down to two guys who, when you look at them, um, you, you, you wouldn't generally think there's been a heap of improvement, but I've ended up, got, ended up going with Michael Porter Jr. as my... Come uh, on. <laughs> are you sniggering there? Is that, is no, no, no. Well? No, I'm sniggering because I went with him as well, so we, we just kept copying yeah. each other. Well, the other guy I was considering was um, Zion Williamson, I think. You know, and he was my was fourth was... place, so that, that would have been boring too. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, I'll, I'll, I've gone with Porter Jr. Um, I think Christian Wood was the obvious choice sort of halfway through the year um, with what he was been able to do in Houston um, coming across from Detroit. But I think the injury injuries got him in the end and, you know, obviously the Houston season died the minute he got injured as well. They just went into a tailspin after that. But, uh, look, I, I lo- I've loved what Michael Porter Jr. has been able to do this year. You know, he's obviously in his first season the NBA didn't play so he basically redshirted so last year um, was his was his rookie year and then obviously had had such disruption with that and finishing the season in the bubble and um, I think there was some frustration from him both out, inwardly and outwardly that you know he, he was getting overlooked you know for, for a key role within that Denver side so he's had to bide his time a little bit but this year now they've had to really rely on him to, to come through and and that he has his minutes up from 16.4 up to 31.6 the scoring up from 9.3 to 19.2 rebounds as well up 4.7 to 7.4 so he's been able to improve all those key numbers the field goal percentage is another that's improved you know he's always been a reasonably good shooter he's 51 percent Last year, he's up to 54% uh, this year. So that's that's outstanding. And the three-point shooting as well at 44% is great. So this guy, I think his potential and, and capability to improve again next season um, is there. I'd expect him to become a you know a mid-20-point-a-game scorer if he can continue on this trajectory and um, you know what he's been able to. We were looking at you know, the Denver roster and who was going to be able to fill the void of Murray when he got hurt and then Will Barton and, you know, was it going to be Aaron Gordon? But it's been Porter Jr. that I think has taken on that role as the, the real second-best player there in Denver and um, they're really going to rely on him now in the playoffs. Yeah, he's going to play a huge part for them. He, he's the one that has really stepped up in the absence, absence of Jamal Murray and he's, he's looking like a, an all-star. I'd, if he can keep this up and going into next season, we, we expect Murray's going to be out for if not the whole season, certainly a large portion of the season. If I could see Michael Porter Jr. really putting his name up to be an all-star next year. And you went through the numbers there about how much he's jumped up uh, from last year. And, so, and some people will go, well, yeah, well, of course he's jumped up. His, his minutes have got bigger. But I think the biggest thing for me, that the reason his minutes has got bigger is because Mike Malone's been able to trust him on the defensive end. There was no question... Porter Jr. and you mentioned the fact that he he'd been frustrated at times in the bubble because he knew he had the ability to put put the ball in the basket. Now, now nobody disputed that, and I'm sure Mike Malone didn't dispute that either. But he just didn't quite trust him enough to play him on the defensive end because he he as most rookies do, he'd fall asleep and and miss some defensive assignments, and it really cost Denver. Now the fact that he's num- that his minutes have jumped up from 16.4 a game to 31.6 points a game is a real credit to him. His ability to be able to uh, bunker down on the defensive end and not be a liability there, and then obviously Denver get the, get the ability of him on the offensive end. So yeah, his he, his year this year has been incredible, and I think he deserves to be rewarded for for the for the improvement he's shown, not only on on the offensive end, but but importantly on the defensive end, which has allowed him his offensive game to flourish. So we'll now move into the six man of the year uh, award. 
I'll be interested to see how, how who you give your top spot to. It could it could come down to a couple of teammates, and I'm interested to see whether your Aussie bias comes through here, Caddy. <laughs> yeah, well, it's quite interesting. I, I don't know without looking at you know only the his, history books or the record books to know when the last time you know two teammates would have been the leading candidates for the Six Man of the Year award, which is a bit of an oxymoron. Really, when one's clearly a sixth man and the other one must be a seventh man, but you know, obviously, we're talking about Jordan Clarkson and Joe Ingalls here. But I've ended up going with Ingalls, and the Aussie bias is probably there. It is Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. (laughs) So I know Jordan Clarkson is the is the favourite. The the sports bet guys have got him at a dollar twenty two to take out the award, but I think Aussie Joe might be able to cause the upset. He's the second elect, you know, and I think probably if things were done at the mid part of the year, Clarkson. You know, was was probably the clear cut guy at that point, but I think what Ingalls has been able to do consistently throughout the season, albeit he's probably been in more of a starting role uh, these last twenty uh, twenty games or so with Donovan Mitchell and then Mike Conley being out of the rotation as well as well. So he has played a lot of time as a starter, but you know, primarily his role from the from the get go this season was was to be a uh, sit, you know coming off the bench and and you know then you know still playing really good minutes for this team. I think what he does is just so, you know, we talk about what Rudy Gobert does, but Joe Ingles as well has got such an important role uh, for this leading Utah team. And, you know, his shooting numbers we've touched on during the season were almost at a historical highs. I know he sort of dropped off a little bit from from some of those numbers um, just in the, in the last few games here of the season. But, you know, he's been able to average 12 points a game for, for Utah, 4.7 assists, 3.6 rebounds and, um, you know, that three-point percentage at 45% is just, you know, incredibly elite. So I've got him just ahead of Clarkson, and that's, you know, it's probably, you know, I think most guys would probably look at the stats and, and take Clarkson over Ingles, but just been lethal from long distance, both off the off the catch when a teammate finds him and also when he's pulling up off the bounce. So uh, the pick-and-roll playmaking that he's been able, you know, he's able to work in with Rudy Gobert and Derek Favors. You know, he's got such a great connection with both of them. So, no, I, I'll... The Aussie there and, and take Joe Ingles. Yeah, look, it's fair enough that despite the fact that I was getting stuck in here for you for loving the Aussies, and we should love the Aussies, Ben. But uh, I, I did side with Clarkson. Now it's interesting you mentioned the fact that um, Ingles had started a he started the twenty nine games out of the sixty six he's played. So that would mean that he started forty three percent of the games, which would actually tie the record for the most games started for somebody to win the Sixth Man of the Year award, which Lamar Odom did back in 2010, 2011. Now, I guess it sounds weird. That was the reason why I just slightly edged towards Clarkson a little bit more because he's played that true six-man-of-the-year award. He hasn't started. He's only started the one game as opposed to the 29 for Ingles. Now, you could counter that by saying, well, it's important that somebody who plays a six-man role for you can actually step in to the starter's role when required and fulfill that to a really good level, which obviously Ingles has done. So it's a, it's a, it's a really tough one to sort of decipher between these two which way you'll go. Um, I, I think traditionally you generally see the guy who scores more who comes off the bench. We've seen that obviously with Lou Williams and Jamal Crawford in the past. Those guys used to put a lot of numbers on the board and they've won multiple awards themselves. So... Guys like Andre Iguodala probably could have won it during his time at Golden State. He never really got across the line despite the fact he probably did deserve to. So I think in the end that'll probably push it Jordan Clarkson's way and did so for me. So he's averaged the 18.2 points a game, the 4.1 rebounds and the 2.5 assists. Now his shooting splits have dropped right off, particularly in the second half of the year. So 42, 34, 89 splits aren't great. But he's still, he's still that instant offense off the bench for, for the league-leading Utah Jazz and plays such a crucial role for them 
as Joe Ingles does as well. I understand that you mentioned the fact that he, you know, he's got such a good synergy with, with Rudy Gobert in the pick and roll. You know, that, and they really shred some uh, defenses when those two work together. You mentioned the fact that he, he's sixty five point four effective field goal percentage. I don't know if that's still on target for for the for the best in the history of the NBA, but it's certainly right up there. So he's had an outstanding year, and in the end, it was just the fact that Clarkson had been the more traditional six man. Uh, role that I just slightly edged towards him. Did you have Clarkson in the second spot? Yeah, second spot, you know, as I said, it's, for me, probably a line ball decision. I was probably just the bias and yeah, that got him over the line. And I'll take your point around the amount of games started uh, for Ingles. I think more so out of necessity than really the, the planning of what they were hoping. And, you know, I'm sure when those when Mitchell comes back and Conley, that he'll, he'll revert back to, a, to the sixth man or sixth or seventh man. Uh, role, but um, yeah, I just love the season that he's he's been able to put together, and, and I think you know, quite incredible that you know that we're talking about teammates vying for the for the six man award. It's quite unusual. Yeah, you mentioned earlier you're not sure if it's ever happened. I, I I didn't I didn't go through the record books either, so it will be really interesting to get get teammates finish one and two, which I think is a really high possibility. Uh, my third spot, and this could have gone to a number of guys, but I, I ended up falling on Jalen Brunson from the Dallas Mavericks. I've I've mentioned him a number of times throughout throughout the the season how impressed I've been with his ability to come off the bench and and orchestrate the offense when Luca ta- takes a seat. Now his numbers at twelve point six points a game, three point four rebounds, and three point five assists. The fifty two forty seventy nine. Uh, splits are really, really healthy. He's had the 12 starts, so you know nowhere near as much as Joe Ingles, and and I think that's been important. I mentioned you know you you do like your your, your six man being able to come in and play that starting role when required. Now he's done that a few times when Doncic has been out, and he's put up some really big numbers when Doncic has been out. He was the one guy that you sort of raced to the waiver wire waiver wire in uh, fantasy and wanted to grab if you knew Doncic was going to be out because he's more than capable of putting up big big numbers when he's given the opportunity to. He played the. Three Three years at college, so he's a really seasoned player, and he just—he's just a real steady uh, hand for the Dallas Mavericks, who, who who I mentioned earlier finishing the fifth seed. Now, now I did throw up the question earlier: who was their second best player? Was it Porzingis or Hardaway Jr.? You could even maybe mount a case for Brunson. You probably probably wouldn't get a lot of votes, but you know you wouldn't be you wouldn't be told you were crazy if you did say it was Jalen Brunson. I just think he's such a steady steady hand for them. Probably the best backup point guard in the NBA, which is obviously really crucial. So I I ended up siding with Jalen Brunson for my third spot. Uh, fair enough. Look, I, I went a little bit different. I've gone with Montreal Harold from the LA Lakers. Genuine six man, sixty nine games played, just the one start this year, averaging twenty two point nine minutes, uh, which is slightly down on what he was averaging with the Clippers in a you know very similar role. Uh, he was in the 26, 27 minutes the last two seasons with the Clippers, down to 22.9, which you think with the amount of injuries, obviously, to Anthony Davis and LeBron James, that he wouldn't have, you know, they may have looked to rely on him a little bit more and even plug him into the starting lineup, but kept him at the 22.9. He's been able to average 13.5 points, 6.2 rebounds, you know, in a, in a clear bench role for them. He's going to be, I think, really important. Coming off the bench again in the playoffs uh, for the LA Lakers, I'd have him as my third spot in this conversation. Yeah, it was always going to be interesting to see how Harold did go on the Lakers. You mentioned the fact there that they had a few injuries to to Davis and LeBron, so it probably is a little bit surprising if we're looking at it that his numbers didn't quite jump up to the you know the average. Sorry, he had the twenty seven point eight minutes last year, so it's probably a bit surprising he didn't edge up a bit closer towards that, but. The interesting thing for me is I'm I'm interested to see how how much floor time he gets during the playoffs. Do, do they play him much? He he can be a bit of a liability on the defensive end. His offensive capabilities can never be questioned. He's a he he just brings he's a ball of energy, isn't he? he gets out there, he runs around. He's got the hair that flops around. He sort of gets he gets his teammates up and going. 
you know, if there's a crowd at the Staples Centre, that they'll love him. So I'm interested to see how Harold goes during the playoffs, but he certainly has had a very good season for them coming off the bench and being, being an important part of their rotation. Now, moving on to the last award, which is the Coach of the Year, there's probably, I think, three standout candidates in this uh, in this award. Which one did you fall on, though, Caddy? Look, probably my least favourite award, really, the Coach of the Year award. I think it's um, one for not only NBA experts, but um, NBA hack hack podcasters like us to sort of get a real insight <laughs> into the, the inner workings of a coaching staff in the NBA. But I think, you know, generally you're looking at improvement and you're looking at guys that have been able to probably overachieve with their team. So for me, in the end this year, I, I couldn't go past Monty Williams at the Phoenix Suns. I think what, you know, he's been able to do with that with that team and, you know, obviously got them into the second best record in the NBA, the second best record in the West, something that I certainly hadn't seen coming. Uh, you know, you, you probably anticipated improvement and the fact that they'd be a playoff team, but yeah, not to the level that they've been able to do this year. So um, I think Monty Williams, you know, and, and his staff and general manager James Jones all need to take you know, their fair share of credit here. But, um, you know, I think, you know, when we when we pat Chris Paul on the back for the improvement, you know, from the on-court on point of view, then I think Monty deserves a, t- a you know, ton of credit for you know, for putting these pieces that um, the GM's been able to give him, put him together, make it work on the floor. Yeah, and I think, you know, for him to be able to make it, make all those uh, mechanics work together, um, I think has been a really good effort and, and he'd be a worthy winner this year with the level of improvement that the Suns have had. No doubt about it. So I had him in, in the second spot. Now, now Phoenix record at 49 and 21, second in the West, uh, and, and the second best record in the league. So last season they were thirty four and thirty nine. So they've had the the fifteen win improvement in obviously in obviously less games. Uh, the top ten in both offense and defense. So so that's a real credit to him and, and a credit to the way he's coached up the team. You know they did have the Chris Paul addition, and you know there's been some things said that maybe Chris Paul's the the, the on floor coach, and he, he's had a real big impact on the way that. That Phoenix have gone about it this year. Now that's certainly the case, but you, you can't you can't dispute the fact that Phoenix in the second spot in in the toughest conference in, in the NBA was something that anybody saw coming. So credit certainly has to go to Monty Williams that he's been able to to gel all these pieces together, G- gelling Chris Paul and Devin Booker together. You know, you, you think yeah, we're getting two real quality players, but there's two guys that like to have the ball in their hands. So I'm I'm certain that wasn't an, an easy thing to sort of navigate, and he's been able to do that really well. But I settled on Tom Thibodeau. Uh, he's got the the New York Knicks at thirty at forty and thirty one, which is fourth in the East. Very similar to to Monty Williams. Nobody in the world saw this coming. Uh, and the thing that stands out for me is uh, they've got the third ranked defense. Now that's been a hallmark of of Thibs right throughout his career. The, the fact that he coaches up the defense, and and I think that the defense is the one thing that the coach can have a really big impact on. And that's that's obviously certainly been the case for the Knicks. We know Randall's had a huge season, and that's one of the the main reasons that New York have been able to jump up so high in in the standings in the East. But 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 Tom Thibodeau really deserves a full credit for for what he's been able to achieve with this roster. That out, outside of Randall is just a bunch of battlers, and you know Derek Rose has had a had a really good season since he's come across. But outside of those two, you, you're not there's not sort of anyone there that, that that the opposition should be too concerned about. And to have them where where they had him had where where he's got them, considering last season they were 21 and 45, so to jump up to 39 wins, the the 18 win improvement is a real credit to him, and that was a reason I, I settled on him for the number one spot in the coach of the year yeah look I had him second you know the, that improvement in the defense from 23rd for the Knicks last year up to fourth and you said you know it's a hallmark of what Thibodeau does everywhere he goes 
you know, the, the, the key for Thibodeau is how long he can sort of keep that message going before they, you know, the players you know, basically get sick of him. So yeah, he's been grading, isn't he? There's been a history of that in the past, but you know, but you know, while he's there, he's been able to gel that team of you know, when, you know, effective journeyman really the New York Knicks put them together, make, making them play hard. It's been you know quite quite fantastic, really. So um, all credit to to, uh, to Thibodeau and the fact you know that he wasn't even in the league there for a year or two was you know, which again is, is quite amazing that someone that's obviously so gifted and and so strong with execution and discipline when when, when coaching that to not even have a have a job there for a year or so is is amazing. So, um, well done to Thibs and well done to the Knicks on on their improvement. Now, now just on that, there, there was there was reports during that year when he didn't coach it. He was travelling around to a number of teams. He, he sat in in a lot of practices, and he's obviously got a lot of relationships from the time that he spent in the NBA. So he he went around to a lot of franchises, saw the way that some of his peers coached, and, and he he has got that reputation. You said there, how long is he going to be able to last at New York? Because he's one of those sort of grading coaches that demands a lot and yells and screams and, and has sort of really long practices and stuff. But they apparently he softened a little bit. He learned a lot from his time away from the game and probably looked at himself and thought he's got to change some things. And you know maybe we're seeing a bit of a new, a new uh, Thibodeau. Maybe he can he can be, have a sustained run for for the Knicks and sort of get them as a perennial playoff contender. That's a, that that'll be good to see if if he is able to do that because uh, as as we've mentioned a number of times the NBA is a better place when the Knicks are up and firing now I, th- I did say I thought it was a three-man race and I thought pretty clearly that the third place uh, guy for me anyway was Quinn Snyder from the Utah Jazz they're 50 and uh, 51 and 20 so the league the league leading record obviously the the, the leading in uh, leading team in the west as well they're third in offense and fourth in defense which is incredible to be top five in in both of those categories speaks volumes for the way Snyder's been able to coach up this team they they jumped up last year from forty four wins, so so to jump up from forty four to to fifty one, you say that's only a seven win improvement. But when you when you're getting high in these rankings, to jump up seven wins is really difficult to do. So I think full credit needs to go to Snyder. They've had a pretty good run up until recently when Mitchell went down with an injury. Um, Conley has missed some games here and there, but when you look at some of these other teams, they probably haven't had the games missed that, that some of the others have, but I don't think you can think Snyder too much, and he deserves to be rewarded for the season that Utah Jazz have had. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, I, I've gone a bit wide here. I, I'd have Snyder, I've got him fourth, and, and probably there's probably a bit of Quinn Snyder fatigue uh, sitting in for me, not too similar to the Giannis stuff with that we talked about with the, the MVP. So the guy I've gone with, um, which is a bit unusual considering he's only coached, what is it, 37 games for the season, was uh, Nate McMillan. Ooh, interesting, so, interesting. So he's, ta- he's got a 26-11 and 11 record, which is just over 70% uh, this year with Atlanta. You know, when he took over the job, they were just, you know, absolute free-fall all the way, you know, almost down, I think, his ninth or tenth seed at that point and in real trouble of potentially missing not only the playoffs but the playing tournament when, you know, early to mid part of the season we were talking about how well they were going and the fact Trey Young, Kai had him as a, an all-star starter, and um, they were, I think you know pretty well entrenched in a, in a four, four or five spot at, at that stage. But you know things turned turned for them, and you know they sacked the coach Lord Lloyd Pierce, and they were able to you know I think have the knowledge that Nate McMillan was waiting in the wings, and he was being able to come in. You know, and, and I think the timing potentially was the fact that um, also Bogdan Bogdanovich returned as a healthy player. Danilo Gallinari also came big back into the lineup at a, at a similar time. You know, but I think you know a heap of credit needs to go to McMillan to be able to right the ship. It would have been really easy to make excuses, um, and the, you know, with the injuries to John Joe Hunter and the Cam Reddish, and then obviously you know Trey Young missed some time later in the year as well. 
you know, they've done an outstanding effort to turn that around and, you know, a 26 and 11 record, nothing to be scoffed at. And the fact now that the Hawks are, are playing tomorrow for a chance to, you know, have home court advantage in the first round of the playoffs, I think, you know, quite incredible. Um, and I think, you know, they're, they're a fair chance to do that. They've got the game against Houston tomorrow, which I think they'd be definite to, to win that. And I'm just looking up now who the, who the Knicks are playing. They've got Boston. So Boston are, you know, almost in a, I wouldn't be surprised if they almost rest players because they don't really need it. Uh, their fortunes can't change, win or lose. So there's a chance the Knicks will still win that game and the Hawks will win, which would still keep Atlanta in the fifth spot. But um, a, a great finish to the season. And, um, yeah, I thought just to be a little bit different, I'll pay around with Nate McMillan. It'll be interesting to see how they do handle McMillan because he's only coached the 37 games, just over half the season. His record has been outstanding, no doubt about that. Yeah, I, I was going to say that you know he he got a little bit luckier than than Lloyd Pierce was the fact that Bogdanovich and Gallinari did come back, but full credit to him to to get the team up and going. Basically, from the second he walked in, they they started playing good basketball. The interesting thing with McMillan is he he's got that reputation of being a really good regular season coach, but he, his teams have come up short in the playoffs, so the pressure's going to be on him to be able to perform in the playoffs. So I'm going to be really interested to see how Atlanta go during the playoffs and. Yeah, and, and also interested to see, you know, if McMillan does get many votes in this Coach of the Year race, considering he's only coach half the season. Now, before we do wind it up, Caddy, you, you've mentioned a couple of scenarios there with the standings. Now, we've got one day left, um, and, and every team's playing, so it's it's there's a number of scenarios that are playing out in both conferences. So we'll start with the West, where the first seed's still up to up for grabs. Now, Utah are on top at the moment with, with 51 and 20 record, and Phoenix are 50 and 21. I think Phoenix have. I'm pretty sure Phoenix have the tiebreaker over them, so they finish with the same record. That they will, they will nail that number one seed. Now Phoenix play San Antonio away. Now San Antonio are locked into the tenth seed, so you'd imagine there's there's a reasonable chance, knowing how Popovich goes, that they will probably rest some guys uh, in that game. But Sacramento, uh, sorry, Utah are playing Sacramento away, and Sacramento obviously have nothing to play for, given that they can't make the playing tournament. They just probably want to lose and get and get their record below the Pelicans and make sure they get a better draft pick. Uh, so it probably looks like Utah are going to take out the number one seed. Could you? Could you? You probably think that's going to happen, wouldn't you, Caddy? Yeah, I think on face value, I think Utah and Phoenix will probably both win those games, uh, which will yeah leave that in. With Utah in the first spot and Phoenix in the second, I think it'd be a, a surprise if it went any other way. Now, the third seed also up for grabs. So De- Denver uh, and the Clippers are tied at 47 and 24. Denver have the, the tiebreak over them. So if they finish with the same record, Denver will finish in the third spot. Now, Denver are playing, interestingly, Portland away. Now, that's a massive game because if Portland lose and the Lakers win, Portland then go into the play-in tournament. So Portland are going to be going hammer and tong to win that game and make sure that they don't fall into that play-in scenario. So Denver have got a really tough one there. Now, the Clippers have got OKC away. Now, OKC haven't been trying for the better part of two months, so you'd expect they'd be able to just roll out and win that. But interestingly, we saw the Clippers rest all their players in their last game against Houston and actually come up short. I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. Do they not want to get that third seed in case the Lakers jump up and get the sixth seed, and they have to play their, their neighbours in that first round? I reckon there could be some jockeying going on here because I'm assuming they're going to prefer to finish in the fourth seed and play Dallas as opposed to finishing the third seed and potentially come up against the Lakers. What What do you reckon's going on in the Clippers' head at the moment? Well, I think that's the, that's probably the point. You know, the Lakers looming there as a as a chance to move back into the sixth spot. So the Lakers are playing the Pelicans. 
Pelicans have got no chance of winning that game. So let, let's pencil that in for the Lakers, and it's really going to come down to that Denver versus Portland game. And, you know, whether then Denver decide to, to play some funny buggers as well and try and potentially, you know, drop that game. They'd prefer to play Dallas than maybe even both Portland and the Lakers, potentially. Yeah, well, that's right. And the, the benefit of all this is the fact that, um, you know, all these games are happening at the same time. So it takes away that ability for some of the teams to, you know, try and see what else is happening around and then sort of make decisions accordingly. So, look, I, I can't see a world in which the Clippers, unless, you know, they just refuse to play, um, lose to the Oklahoma City Thunder, um, you know, there's just nothing in it for the Thunder to, to try and win that they game. They did just they, lose to Houston, though, who have been putrid as well. Yeah, what, know, what do you reckon yeah. they'll do? Do you think they're going to play George and Leonard and, and some of these other guys? Because they didn't play him last game. If they don't play him again tomorrow, there, there's that little break before the playoffs kick off because you've got to wait for these play-in tournaments to occur. So it could yeah. be could be sort of seven, eight, nine days between games. I'll be really interested to see what they do tomorrow. Yeah, but even so, I think if George and Leonard don't play, I still can't see how the Thunder win a lot. The Thunder have lost nine games. In a, on the road in a row here and have just absolutely no appetite for winning. So I, I think the Clippers would absolutely just have to sleepwalk their way through, which which potentially they could. And uh, but you know Denver could also do something similar. So who knows? That's the excitement of the way it's sort of been able to shake out uh, with these extra um, playoff positions available. So yeah, who knows? Look as it stands. Let's let's assume. Um, Portland knock over Denver for the sake of the argument, and let's assume that uh, the Clippers beat Oklahoma City. Then it will get Denver into the fourth seed, play Dallas, and the Clippers will then play Portland in the three versus six matchup. So, yeah, I think they're all going to be trying to keep the Lakers out of that spot uh, to start with. But then, yeah, they don't want to you know, do something silly and and you know cause a harder matchup for themselves either. So, yeah, it's going to be. I'm really interested to see what happens there tomorrow. That Denver Portland game becomes so big. I, I think Portland will win that, and it'll probably benefit. Both, both of them, um, if, if that does occur. So the fifth seed, I'm pretty sure Dallas are locked into that. I think they, even if they lose tomorrow, now they're playing Minnesota away, so you wouldn't think they would. You mentioned the fact that they've won eight of their last ten. So we're going to assume they win that tomorrow. Uh, the seventh seed, uh, we've spoken about that, the, the Portland-Dallas scenario there. So th- that's a really interesting one. Obviously the Lakers are, are going to be aren't going to want to be in that playing tournament or, or or do they do they want to get another game into LeBron and Davis together but obviously you're taking the chance of being able to lose that so yeah it, it's really interesting and then, and then we go down to the eighth and ninth seeds at the battle there to, to get into that to that upper part of the playing tournament and and we've got Golden State incredibly tomorrow playing Memphis so how do you, how do you see that game going caddy Golden State maybe would be favorites or, or or do you see Memphis being able to take that one out no, look, I think, you know, this is what they we've been gearing up for. You know, the the run that both all these teams have had into the to this end of the season is, is incredible. So Memphis have won five in a row, Golden State have won five in a row, and the Lakers have won four in a row. So they're clearly what the NBA have done in bringing this, um, you know, extending out the seedings is, is, for me, I think, working for sure. So look out of that, you know, head-to-head game between Golden State and Memphis, look, I think this is going to be an indication of what we're hopefully going to expect in the plane with um, the Warriors, and it's going to be the Steph Curry show, and we're all going to be excited for it. The Warriors are going to start favourite, and um, the game is played in, in Golden State. So I look, I'll, I'll go with them at this stage and, and get them into that seven versus eight spot, and maybe a likely matchup against the LA Lakers, which you know when the NBA script writers would have been um, you know planning 
this tournament at the start of the year, this is the type of result that you know, I'm sure they probably didn't anticipate with the Lakers, but you know, exactly exactly what they want. Carry on the big stage against LeBron James in a play in tournament um matchup, which wouldn't have existed otherwise, is um is it gonna be a ratings bonanza. Yeah, hats off to the NBA for this because it's very rare you get usually you might get one or two games with a lot of intrigue in the last in the la- on the last day, but to have so many games being so meaningful tomorrow is exactly what you want. You don't want you know these last few games just to, to, for players and teams to be going through the motions. So we move over into the East, and, and that's second seed. I'm not quite sure who's got the the tiebreak over Brooklyn and Milwaukee tomorrow, but if if Brooklyn lose and Milwaukee win, they'll finish on the same record. Now Brooklyn are playing the Cavs at home, uh, so you, you wouldn't imagine they're going to lose, and Milwaukee are playing the Bucks away, or the Bulls, sorry, away. So you wouldn't imagine they're going to lose. So, so we'll, we'll say that it holds court there, and and Brooklyn finishing the second seed, and Milwaukee finishing the third. Now the four, five, six is is still up for grabs. Now York, New York in the fourth seed at the moment, and Atlanta in the fifth seed have the same record. New York have the tiebreaker over Atlanta. So you spoke about this earlier. New York are playing Boston. Boston are locked in in that seventh seed. They're probably going to rest all their guys. Uh, so you'd think New York would probably get across the line there. Uh, Atlanta playing Houston at home. Houston, as as we said, have been putrid, although they did manage to knock over the Clippers earlier in the week. Uh, Atlanta should be able to get across the line there. And Miami playing Detroit, who have been one of the worst teams, uh, actually uh, the second worst team in the NBA right throughout the season. So you think they're going to win there. So they all win, and the standings stay as they are, the 4-5-6, New York, Atlanta, Miami finishes as that. That that would mean Milwaukee play Miami in that first round. Now, interestingly enough, to, they played each other today, and Milwaukee, if they wanted to avoid Miami, could have rested their guys, conceded that game to Miami, and made it almost impossible for Miami to finish in the sixth seed and, and play Milwaukee in that first round. Jimmy Butler didn't play today because he had a lower back injury. Um, so I don't know how serious that were. You wouldn't imagine Miami are trying to play Milwaukee in that first round, but I found it really interesting that Milwaukee were more than happy to win today and probably uh, shift uh, Miami into, into into a matchup against them in that first round. Did that surprise you that Milwaukee were happy to do that today, Caddy? Yeah, look, I think we've got to be careful sometimes that some of these teams don't over, try to overthink you know, these positionings. And you've almost got to go out. If, you, if you're putting your best team out there, you've almost got to allow allowed to run its course. And I think, you know, Milwaukee, I don't think you're going to be too concerned about who they play really in that first round. Um, obviously, there could have been a uh, potential that you know Atlanta could have slid down to the sixth seed if Miami had won or something like that. But look, I think Milwaukee at this stage are going to be pretty confident whoever they play in that third versus sixth matchup. Or, you know, I know Miami are going to be probably favoured more so than you know if they played Atlanta. But I think Milwaukee will be too strong either way. So you know, the interest tomorrow is going to lie in those eight, nine, and ten spots, and we've got another sort of play-in or a pre-play-in game with, um, I think it's Washington and Charlotte are, are matched up again tomorrow and the winner of that will, will essentially finish finish in the eighth spot and um, get the double chance in the play-in. Yeah, so, so, that, so that's going to be huge, isn't it? That 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 game there, similar miraculously to the, to the Golden State-Memphis game. And, and I'm not sure if Bill's playing or not. I don't know if they've announced that yet. He's obviously missed the last couple of games. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether they give him that extra couple of days off with that hamstring hamstring injury, or they play him and try and and try and jump up into into that eighth spot. So they're they're in that first sort of playing bracket and get that double chance. Uh, Indiana playing Toronto away now. Toronto have effectively been resting all all, all their star players anyway. So you'd imagine Indiana are going to win that one. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of intrigue uh, in, in this last day uh, of the 
of the season, which is, you know, as I mentioned earlier, is great. That that's what we want to see. So, yeah, I'm really looking to see how all this fall, uh, how all of this falls. Just going back quickly to that to that Milwaukee Miami matchup. I, I don't know about that. I, there's going to be so much pressure on Milwaukee to perform this year. You know, they made the changes to their roster. They've brought in Drew Holiday. They've basically, you know, they change up the way they've defended. They've switched a lot more because they think it's going to help them in the playoffs. I, I don't know. I, I think you're playing. I, I get it. You don't want to sort of play around too much and and try and. Uh, make the matchups for your way. But if there was any way I could have avoided Miami, who who have really started to play some good ball over the last sort of 10 to 12 games, I, I certainly would have done that. You, you'd much rather come up against New York and Atlanta, and there's going to be a, a heap of pressure going to Milwaukee if it does fall fall that way, which, you know, it certainly looks like it's going to. So that's going to be a really good first-round matchup, which I'm sure we'll talk about a lot more in depth next week. So we'll call it there again, one of these extra long ones as we went through all these awards and sort of spoke about the last day of the season. Uh, as I say every week, thank you to everybody who continues to support us by downloading this podcast. Uh, if you can sp- spread it by word of mouth or jumping onto the Facebook page and by liking that, we'd really appreciate that. And uh, we'll talk to you all next week.